Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Better Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan. Across from me, we have Lauren. Hey. And Anya. Hello. George isn't here with us, but she will be back next week. But we also have her interview that she did with the fabulous Abby Mag. Mm. So, it is already the 15th of January. How? No, I know. How? Literally. Mm. And it's bloody hot today. Mm, I don't know the exact temperature, but guys, it's just going to be really hot. Wear sunscreen. Yeah. And ice your water. Mm. Keep your dogs inside. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Skin cancer is real. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And this has been medical hour. And there's a myth that that darker skinned people don't need as much sunscreen. It's a myth. Wear sunscreen. This is very relevant today. What is our topic? Our topic today... For summer school 2019 is mm. race and identity. Yes. Mm, and wonderful. For people just tuning in, didn't listen to last week's episode, mm. what's summer school about? What is summer school about, Anya? Why am I doing all the explaining <laughs> today? Um, summer school is Tuesday Breakfast's special summer program, and we're focusing on different themes each week, and we're getting experts and academics and writers and activists to come in and break down complex language um, on air and explain how um, the themes are relevant to today's society and how structural disadvantage works and how we can change it. Mm. So last week we looked at sovereignty and self-determination and we had some fantastic guests explain what those terms mean and how that works. And today we're looking at race and identity and we've also got a great lineup of people talking to us about it. Mm. Yeah, in a minute we're going to kick to the interview that George did with Abby Mag. Um, and Abby is a social media influencer, a curator and social advocate of South Sudanese origin. Um, she's also really amazing and beautiful on Instagram, if anybody has IG and would like to follow her. Mm. Um, later in the show we're going to hear from Alana Lenton, who is an associate professor of culture and social analysis, cultural and social analysis, my bad, at the University of New South Wales, president of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association and a member of the Institute for Culture and Society. Um, And finally, later in the program, we'll be um, joined by Edie Shepherd, who's a proud Wiradjuri and Balarong woman. um, And she's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander for, sorry, Islander organisator. Oh my gosh, give me a coffee. (laughs) Organiser. Uh, for the Victorian Trades Hall Council. So um, heaps of different kinds of structural racism to learn about Mm. today. Mm. Speaking of racism, Mm. over the weekend we went to the rally. Wait, who organised the rally? Can you... Calf. Calf, okay. And they're... The Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Very nice. Mm. So we went to a protest... Um, that happened at the State Library. And this protest was in, res- in response to the protest that happened a week before that. That that one was a mixture of the some neo-Nazis gathering um, together in St. Kilda 
and sort of reclaiming the beach, which is hilarious to say. Mm. And there was also an opposition of people who are who are against it. So that's in response to that protest. This one was organized on Saturday and mm. it was a decent turnout, but I was having a chat with somebody and we were saying I think people were a bit exhausted. Maybe that's why the numbers mm. weren't as big as mm. they could have been. Mm. Um, I think speaking to a lot of people, I think people were a bit nervous as well after the, um, the I guess, just how the St Kilda one went um, and a lot of, like, there was a lot of safety concerns after that. So I think people were nervous to come out again. Mm. 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 But it just, um, so there were several really, really good speakers who, um, you know, talked about racism in, in general, but also how it affects them daily. Um, but I think the, there was, um, what's his name, Titus. Mm. Yeah. So Titus talked about, you know, the whole media um, hurrah about the South Sudanese gangs and, and all that sort of thing. And he started his speech by saying, I'm tired. Mm. And you could just feel the collective sigh from, you know, all the people of colour that were standing at the rally. And that's what stays with me, that, yeah, it's tiring to go to rallies twice in two weeks, Mm. but people who face this every day, it's tiring. Mm. And that's why people need to show up. Mm. It's my humble take. Yes. Mm. His name is, I just, as you were talking, I was like, we want to make sure that we get his name right. Mm. It's Titan. Oh, T- Titan, sorry. No, no, you're fine. T-I-T-A-N. Just in case any of his friends are listening and they're like, Titus? What the hell is that? <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, he, he's, he's incredible. Um, mm. So he, you know, he, there was no speech. He had nothing written down. Mm. Everything was from, like, the, from, heart, the, yeah. Yeah, from the heart. Mm. Just recited what he needed to res- um, say. And I loved that he contextualized as well. He mm. talked about police brutality Mm. he talked about um media representation so it wasn't just you know racism is bad Mm. he talked about what we're going to talk about hopefully today about Mm. the structures which was really good yeah um but i think you yeah i just wanted to share something that a friend told me yesterday you know sometimes you you you're in a bubble and you think you know, these things don't really happen every day, um, except for the people who actually experience it every day. And she told me that she was on the train yesterday wearing shorts, right, because it was 37 degrees and it was really hot. And she got into a conversation with this white man who basically asked her where she was from, classic, and she said, um, you know, she's from New Delhi in India. And he said, um, oh, so you wouldn't dress like this in Delhi, but you'd wear something like this in Australia and other Western countries. And he also said, people in Delhi seem to enjoy wearing pants in 53 degrees. So there's this massive, you know, layering of shaming her for what she was wearing, but also <clears throat> the racism that mm. happened. And it's just unwarranted, unasked opinions, mm. which happens all the time. Mm. And she just texted me being like, you know what? I'm also tired. Mm. And it makes, I think, um, Nierdahl, who's, who's this amazing lawyer and activist, she talks a lot about how racism makes us sick. Mm. And physically also, it does. You know, tightness gets to you. And even at the rally, I remember seeing this, this man holding up a sign that said, uh, I'm German, we've seen this before. Mm. And the recurring trauma and the, you know, the, the triggering of those, those sorts of things, it all makes us sick. Mm. Mm. 
Um, there's a post that Helen Reyes um, put up. I, I want to make sh- is she a columnist, um, Lauren? Uh, oh, yeah, she writes for Crikey. Yeah, yeah. So she's you know, she, incredible person. So she put up a post saying that because I did see her at the protest. I'm mm. not sure if you saw her, but she put up a post the night before or on the day. Doesn't really matter. But she put up a post saying um, how it's easy for people to. Um, just sort of, you know, say, oh, this guy, this is just some lone wolf or no one's really going to pay attention to him or he doesn't have the organisational skills. But that's how Hitler started off. Everyone righted him off as a joke Mm -hmm. until he wasn't a joke anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow. Donald Trump. Mm. Y'all completely forgot about the... But it's like, we all thought it was so crazy and funny until it was terrifying and real mm. and now it's too late he's mm. trying to build a wall mm. like history repeats itself mm. Mm. so we'll play some um few csas and then we'll be back with the interview with abby have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics intersectionality turf or institutional racism same here this summer tuesday breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonisation, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune into Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am starting the 8th of January. 855 AM or via 3cr.org.au and check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think. Wayward Girl, the intersectional feminist music show. Tune in Fridays 9 to 10 through summer on 3CR. Welcome back. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. The time is 7.10 a.m. Now we will be playing an interview that George did with Abby Mag. So I'm here with Abby Mag, who is a social media influencer, event curator and social advocate of South Sudanese origin. A media and communication student, Abby's interests lie in the use of social media and how it can be used as a means of telling stories and changing narratives. Thank you so much for joining us today, Abby. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. Especially on your lunch break as well. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, we've got to do what we've got to do. Yep. <laughs> so you're the creator of Our Voices, Inc. and a yeah. contributor to Watu Australia. Yes. Can you tell us about these projects and how they seek to challenge structural racism? Uh, so, yeah, um, I'm actually, we launched Our Voices, Inc. and Water Australia last year. And Our Voices, Inc. is essentially a platform that was created to amplify the voices of women 
women of color that are uh, that live here in um in Victoria and it is essentially a space in which we recognize that um women of color are heavily neglected and are in a way uh sort of ignored sometimes and that are um so I was just thinking as a platform that we we decided to create out of the need to sort of celebrate us and um provide support for us and not sort of leading on towards other people to sort of create that space for us. I'm actually the media coordinator for Watch Australia. Oh, cool. And um yeah, so Watch Australia is a community curated platform that aims to share the voices of um African Australians in Australia. And um this was created out of the need of to create better representation for African Australians in in right in the middle of what's been going on in terms of like the whole um African gangs and like feudal gangs kind of thing. There was this need to sort of present stories that were written by us for us um, and as a way sort of to challenge the um, media biases and um, just the, uh, the harmful stereotypes and um, the, the media was reinforcing about us and it was, okay, like let's create a space where we are telling stories that we want to hear, stories that we know are out there but it's not being reported on because that's not what it sells. And so we wanted it to be an open space where you don't have to be part of WATU, but you are able to submit stories. And um, so there is a committee team, and so that's seven of us, and we just work alongside each other to feature stories that are not readily available or not broadcast on by the mass media. Mm. Um, so both of these platforms cater for people of color. They aim to challenge racial um, stereotypes, it, it's sort of, in a way, um, making sure that we're, I don't want to say not left out, I don't want to say like an even playing field. Sort yeah, of right, yeah. Yeah, so in conjunction to the negative, this is a positive, and it's sort of now on us to make sure that what we know is true is out there, and so that no one is able to be like, oh, well, you know what I mean? Like, this, mm. there's just there's no way that you can say that Nothing's been created when there are white voices think and there are, and there is Watch Australia, which is out here, um, you know, breaking down stereotypes mm. and making sure that um that we're being heard and yeah. um yeah. yeah. Essentially, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like <laughs> such incredible work and so important to elevate the voices of people of colour and yeah. as a way of kind of combating that really toxic media rhetoric that we've been seeing. I wanted to move on to this term misogynoir, which is a term that seems to be uh, frequently used these days. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what this means and if you feel comfortable, if you have any examples of such behaviour that our listeners might be familiar with? Uh, yeah, so misogynoir, oh, I can't even say it now. Um, misogynoir, hmm, that is not how you say it. But. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> um, it's actually a, um, it was a term that was actually... Um, uh, coined by two um, African-American women in the U.S. Um, Moya Bailey and Trudy came up with that term back in um, 2008. And it essentially just describes the anti-black um, racist misogyny that um, black women experience. And um, so this is essentially um, talking about um, when in terms of like white women, they experience misogyny. Um, but black women experience misogyny and racism at the same time. And it really aims to give a word to an experience that is so uniquely um, apparent for black women. And um, and I think a, and a perfect example of misogynoir is, um, and a little trigger warning, this is 
um, I'm going to speak on the whole uh, Carly um, mm. situation. Um, and an example of this term is Chance the Rapper, and um, essentially his justification of working with um, R. Kelly was that um, he didn't believe the stories that was being told by R. Kelly by these black women because they're black women. And so there's no better example of this word than that. It's the, uh, it's the inability to believe black women because there are black women. It's to not believe our pain. It's to not believe our story. It's to always second doubt us and making sure that I guess in a way it's all about like white supremacy. It's all about making sure that, um, you know, white women are uplifted and black women are sort of like denied. Or that if, in a way where it's, it's all about saving black women, but it's also like making sure that black women are not the ones who are sort of saving themselves. Mm. It's making sure that other people do it. And it's like, why not give black women the chance to, to speak for themselves, to make to to say what it is that they need to sort of um, heal themselves and um, there's just so many examples of this. I think for me, uh, it would probably be um, one of my aunties back when my sister was getting married um, last year um, spoke to me and she said that um, she wanted me to, when it comes time to, when it comes to me getting married later on down in the years, she wanted me to bleach my skin so my photos can come, so they can end up looking pretty. And I was mm. just like, and I mean, that also speaks, speaks into um, colorism, but it's also like, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's the existence of black women. It does not sit right, and it's this is what this um, misogynoir is. It's trying to combat that, and it's trying to it's sort of let people know that we're here, mm-hmm. and that yeah, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> I'm uh, rambling. Yeah. But no, yeah. no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, those both those examples seem so kind of apt in demonstrating how racism yeah. and sexism work together to produce specific kinds of discrimination and yeah. it, the need to kind of look at it as, as, as how, they, how they do work together. Right. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned colorism. So could you sort of tell us a little bit about that for any listeners who might not have heard this term before? Uh, well, colorism essentially in its basic definition is favoring lighter skin tones in comparison to uh, darker skin tones. And it's also making, it's believing it's also wanting, it's also choosing white as opposed to black, kind of. And it's um, it's really, it's something that um, internal as well, like you can practice colorism while being black. Um, and it's not necessarily just um, white folks or um, uh, non-black people practicing colorism. You could also be black and you could also practice colorism. It's really just this, like anti-blackness is in, in another word. Mm. It's not wanting anything to do with blackness it's it's also upholding stereotypes as well but yeah that's that's what i my head i think colorism is yeah and is it um abby is it a relatively new term that's been colorism yeah no No. definitely not Mm -hmm. no and i think um in terms of australian context it's not and this can be seen through the whole whitewashing of indigenous folks and it's like when you look at our TVs and stuff like that, all you see is white. That that is colorism in itself. Mm. Um, it's saying that what is presentable on TV or in magazines is whiteness, and that is colorism. Mm-hmm. And it, although the word might not be very familiar, um, people might not be able to familiarize themselves with the word colorism. It's the examples are all around us, and mm. we just have to open eyes and just see. Yeah. 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 I was just thinking about older generations that might have experienced. Um, these types of discrimination but might not have had the language to describe it? In the yeah, past. it's like, it's like, 
banning black people in the pool because you think that um, because they're black, something's going to happen to the pool. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just like all those times where like black people are told not to, to go anywhere because they're dirty or um, that um, because of a color of our skins, it means that we're something else, that um, that's colorism in itself. And um, yeah, I totally agree. I don't think that um, we have the language as of yet here in mm. Australia to really call it what it is, but the examples are everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Abby Mag, social media influencer and social advocate as part of our summer school episode on race and identity. So let's move on to social media. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're a model um, and influencer who has a huge Instagram following and you've been featured in publications like Teen Vogue and Archer magazine. And as part of this work, yeah. you often discuss issues around representation. What does this mean for you and why do you feel like it's important? Uh, uh, well, representation for me is the ability to see yourself being reflected. It's being visible, literally. For I've been on social media since, I don't know, like yeah, 10 or so, and I'm in uni now. And it's only now in 2018 and 2017 that I've started to see more people who look like me on social media. And so when I speak on representation, I speak on um, really like providing a, a space or providing a platform for... Um, us to be represented and I think it's really important for me because in this very wide world that we live in where stereotypes are, are upheld it's it's so important for us to to see people who look like who look like us who are not upholding stereotypes who are actually on tv who are doing modeling who are lawyers who are you know what I mean like mm. it's just like it's it's good to hear it but when you see it it's 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 completely different. And also, color um, representation comes back into the fact that if, say, a comp- like a makeup company, if they, don't, if they don't see black folks, then they don't think that black folks are there, so therefore they don't make products for us. Although that goes back into like white supremacy and stuff, but like, it's, that's literally how it works. Mm. It's like when, you know what I mean? Like you have to see things yeah. to, to sort of like, they're like, okay, actually, yeah, they're, they're there and stuff. But um. But yeah, in terms of like representation, I think it's it's very important, especially for the young ones, to see themselves being broadcasted. Especially when you turn on the news and all you see is just like all oh, these thugs and like these gangs and stuff like that. And it's like every channel that you turn on, it's the same thing. And it's like, well, where are the folks who are, you know, who are actually out here in the community doing things and stuff? Who are not, you know, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, essentially. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I guess yeah. there's that there are those uh, critiques of social media um, and mm-hmm. how it's like a, can be harmful in some ways. But then when you think about how it can be a space for minority communities or communities yeah. that are excluded from mainstream media to yeah. um, celebrate the beauty or celebrate you know the things that are positive about their identities or talk right. about the issues that that they face, yeah. it just as a as a form of activism and and representation mm-hmm. and everything, it just seems so powerful. Yeah, and I, that's what I love about social media. Though, although like there are bad things, I mean not bad things, but although there are negatives of it, there's so much positives. Like I've been able to connect with people around the world, and like people who, because if you look at my Instagram, it's like <laughs> it's selfies, but like people like know that it's it, although it's a selfie for me, like it might be so, like something revolutionary for like another black girl who is in like another who is in a very white dominated um country who doesn't normally see herself reflected and then she's you know what i mean Mm. it's sort of like we 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 think it's these small things but it's actually not when like you never see yourself being reflected and and you come and you see people who are 
on social media, being visible and being proud and, and just, like, living. And mm. it's, it's so, like, yeah. Like, I can't explain it, but, like, people know. People understand. Yeah, it would be so huge. I mean, that to be that young yeah. girl as you described and see someone like you out yeah. there and just go, wow, like, I can be like that, you know. That's, right. Yeah. Um, <sighs> and so <laughs> just want to fit in. Two last questions. What, if any, relationship do you see between race and a personal sense of identity? Um, hmm. I'd, I'd probably say... I, will, I, I don't think there's any relationship. Mm-hmm. For me specifically, I think race is a social construct. So race is someone else telling me, because I look this way, because I've got this nose, because I've got this skin tone, I belong with these other people who look like me. And my sense of identity is looking underneath that and looking past my nose, past my skin tone, and, and really who am I as a person? What are my beliefs? What is my personality like? You know what I mean? And it's like, mm. yeah, no, I think in terms of, yeah, no, I wouldn't say there's any relationship. Right, so uh, seeing race as something more that's imposed on people by society as opposed to yeah. something that's intrinsic to their, yeah, to who they are. Yeah. Yeah. And so as a last question, um, mm. are there any writers or thinkers you can recommend to people who are interested in learning more about what we've talked about today? I would highly recommend looking into um, Moira Bailey and Trudy. And they're both, can be found on Twitter, but they also have publications out as well. And these are... Um, previously stated these are the the woman who coined the word misogynoir mm. and um they actually ha- um have a written piece out called um, on misogynoir citation erasure and plagiarism in which they speak on how even though they're the ones who coined this term, those who've been using it haven't been sort of credited in them nor have they sort of been cited on which in itself is misogynoir mm-hmm. um, yeah. so I would highly recommend reading that piece um, there's also Alexis Pauline Gums who speaks more on black feminism and why the world needs black feminism and there's uh, the classics Audre Lorde the mm-hmm. books um, yeah. James Bolden but um, although these are my although these are U.S. based folks we have to remember that you know racism and anti-black racism is global and so they work really does speak volume on a on an international level. There's also a lot of podcasts out there for those who don't like to read. Yeah, <laughs> um, cool. There's a bunch of fantastic podcasts that I've sort of been introduced on um, last year. There's Masha's Plate. There's Tea with Queen and Jay. There's just so many um, black folks and people of color who are creating podcasts that you can also tune into. Yeah. Sick. Thank you so much. That's a great selection. We'll make sure that we share that with our listeners thank you so much for having me joy thank you it's been yeah it's been great to talk about um all of these ideas around race and gender and i guess yeah. there's also stuff with body image that one day would be great to chat with you about as well that oh, we didn't have time definitely. for <laughs> yeah um, no definitely <laughs> yeah and it just seems like yeah all the work you're doing to empower women of color is just is so important and and thank you so much for being available to speak with me today oh thank you for having me Cheers. <laughs>
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, Lauren and myself, Anya. That was Georgie Maxwell, who's not in the studio today, but that was Georgie's interview with Abby Mag, who's a social media influencer, e- event curator and social advocate of South Sydney's origin. Um, and she talked about structural racism, um, misogyny, the importance of representation and why she does the work she does. Um, Listeners, if you're if you're just tuning in, um, we're talking about race and identity on our special summer school program today. And if you have any thoughts or questions or just want to share something with us, please text us on zero four eight 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 zero nine eight five five. That's zero four eight 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 zero nine eight five five. Before we jump into the next interview, we have a song for you. It's called "Protect Your Queen" by Sampa the Great. And you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. 
You are listening to our summer school program and we're on episode two, which um, is an examination of race, racism and identity. And we are very lucky to be joined live on the phone now by Professor Alana Lenton, who is an Associate Professor of Cultural and Social Analysis at the University of New South Wales, President of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association and a member of the Institute for Culture and Society. She's joining us this morning to explain what we mean when we mean or when we say racism. So thank you, Alana, for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from Gadigal country and uh, make one little correction if I could. Not that it matters matters to me, but that probably to my employers, which is Western Sydney University, not (gasps) UNSW. Oh, goodness. My apologies. I'm very bad (laughs) with the New South Wales higher education. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start probably with just the most basic, because that is the point of our summer school program. What do we talk about when we talk about race? Okay, I think um, what I want to start with is by making one very basic comment about race, because it's probably the thing that is most overlooked. Um, but I think the thing that actually clicks in and makes makes it much easier for people to understand what we're talking about. And that is to say that it is important to talk about race as something that does something rather than something that is something. And I'm taking those ideas from people such as Jose Munoz, uh, Wendy Hugh, Kyung Chun, and others who have spoken about race as uh, having a function rather than being descriptive of something. Now, that doesn't mean that there hasn't been attempts to systematize race, to use race as labels, both negative, firstly, and obviously later positive in order to claim racial identities by various communities. But that shouldn't be confused with the origins of race, which actually originates in Europe in the 15th century. There are arguments around the precise date, but the first use of race in the modern sense of the word really only comes about in the sort of late 15th century, around the time of uh, the Spanish Inquisition, and the idea that there is uh, pure and impure blood, which was the concept that drove the um, expulsion of the Jews and the so-called Moors or Muslims, as we would say today, from uh, Spain at that time, and which later was used within the context of the invasion and subsequent colonization of the Americas by the Spanish and the Portuguese. So ultimately, the idea of, ra- of race, which, as Alexander Wehalia says is basically about the division of humanity into three categories, the human, the not quite human, and the non-human, should be understood as a technology of power for the management of human life. So that's my basic approach to race. There are many other things I could say for the moment, but maybe you have a follow-up to that. <laughs> I think that's, um, that is a really interesting way of, of stepping back, because at the moment that is what we're seeing I think we can see it quite clearly when we look at, for example, the Australian context of race being used, it's almost being weaponized or it's being used as a tool of uh, dividing society and categorizing people um, mm-hmm. rather than, as you say, something that just is. Um, mm-hmm. And so then when we talk about racism, how is that related to your understanding or your explanation just now of what race is? Okay, so, I mean... The other thing I just want to add in about race is that it should also be understood as what Stuart Hall called an articulation. In other words, it's not, it, it, it's not a standalone. 
and it relies on a variety of structures, ideas, myths, etc., uh, to make its case, if you like. Mm. And it kind of goes through through periods. I mean, Stuart Hall describes this really well in his famous lecture, Race the Floating Signifier. Um, three stages, the religious, um, the national, right? So race mm. developing alongside nation, if we look at the history of the 18th century in Europe. And finally, only the scientific, which is what most of us think of when we think about, the, or, you know, what is racism? Well, it's something about how a pseudoscientist created this idea that there were different racial groups and that they were organized according to a hierarchy. And that's kind of what we're left with when people try to understand um, what race is. But we don't understand everything about race if we start with the idea of biological race and then assume that there's something called a new cultural idea of race which has overtaken it. In fact, these two things coexist race has always been both cultural and biological, if you like, so, or, and, and has appealed to ideas of nature. In other words, um, human beings who were considered to be racially inferior are stuck in, uh, in time because they are naturally less progressed than white Europeans. But equally, this takes on uh, this, use, this same idea uses a cultural language which assumes, not, which doesn't place heavy emphasis on the idea of natural biological distinctions or heredity distinctions, but places more em- emphasis on things like incom- incompatibility of various cultures. So if we think about the way anti-immigration works today, the emphasis is very much there, but we have much longer antecedents for understanding why that language is available to us today, right? So that, I'm just bracketing that in order to then say, how does this relate to racism? I'm actually doing some research into this at the moment for this book that I'm writing because I've always been fascinated by um, the relationship between race and racism. And most of us understand racism to be an idea, ideology based on the idea uh, of the belief in a racial hierarchy, right? But actually, and that's, you know, that's basically true, but we assume very often, or many people assume, that um, racism is kind of something that we can't do very much about because it manifests in all societies. And that's because we have um, an assumption that racism is akin to prejudice, right? And so Mm -hmm. we think that um, fearing, mistrusting, or hating the other is what racism is about. And very often that leads to kind of very well-meaning educational programs where we say, well, if we just can explain to people that actually we're all equal, um, there are no such things as racial divisions and racial groups and so on, then we can come to a better societal um, understanding. But actually the concept of the word racism really only originates around the beginning of the 20th century. And the most uses of it are to be found around the 1930s in European contexts like France and Germany. Now, it would be very obvious to all of us why that would be the case, because, of course, you have a situation of mounting fascism at that time, very much driven by racist genocidal ideas. And the first people to coin the term racism are, in the main, people who agree with this, right? Mm. So they're, they're, they're speaking from a position of a belief in white racial superiority, and racism for them is a positive term. And this problem 
uh, there's a second thing I can say about that, which there are also other people who use the term racism who are actually concerned by the rise of fascism. People like Ashley Montague, um, who was a genetic, an early geneticist who was, um, you know, looking at Nazi Germany and being very concerned about what was happening there. But at the same time, as the professor of African-American studies, Barner Hesse, has pointed out, People like Montague were almost completely oblivious to the fact of colonial domination, which, of course, coexisted with this rise of fascism and preceded it. And, in fact, concentration camps in Namibia provided very much the blueprint for, later on, the European Holocaust enacted by the Nazis, right? So the word racism gets used both by racist, let's put it blankly, Mm -hmm. and by people concerned with a particular European variant of racism, basically anti-Semitism, but but in complete ignorance or even in, uh, even while condoning imperial colonial domination. So Mm -hmm. this leads Barner Hesse to ask the controversial question of whether the term racism, when it's taken over by, for example, black activists in the United States, is in fact fit for purpose because of its origin. So that might be a question uh, people would be interested to think think further about. Mm. I think you've also touched on um, the the parallels, I guess, and and the idea of blueprints in terms of enacting mm-hmm. um, enacting racism in mm. you know if as you say race is used as a, a a classifier and racism is sort of a tool in that way. Um, maybe we'll jump forward a little bit. Um, and talk about then institutional or structural racism and these ideas mm-hmm. of it, um, yeah, I guess being a tool of the state or a religion or a national movement or something like that. What what do we mean when when we hear the terms structural racism? Okay, so, I mean, you also mentioned to me earlier systemic racism, mm. and I think there are, these are three concepts that generally are used interchangeably, so systemic, structural, and institutional racism. But I think they've kind of come to take on um, slightly different meanings through their usage. So whereas I think they were developed interchangeably and can be used interchangeably, systemic or structural racism really refers to the very basis of the system. A very obvious example right here in Australia is that Australia basically does not exist in the absence of colonization, which is the structural condition for its existence, right? So understanding racism from this perspective understands that systems are um, not the unwitting um, perpetrators or, you know, condition, they, they, they don't provide the context within race, races, within, sorry, within which racism would otherwise flourish, but they are the very basis for mm-hmm. the perpetuation of racism. In other words, they are established to perpetuate racism. So there's nothing um, unintentional about this situation. And I think if we think about the extent of uh, racialized carceralism today and the absolute, um, you know, endemic nature of, um, of Aboriginal youth incarceration and the incarceration of women for things like non-payment of fines and so on, we can see that the system is established to perpetuate a vicious circle in which Aboriginal people, as they were from the beginning, are cast as illegitimate subjects within the nation mm-hmm. um, and the colony. Yeah. And so how, the difference, oh, sorry, sorry. Just, do you want me to continue and, and yes, compare that to yeah. institutional racism? So, 
So, yeah, so the, I, as I said, I mean, I think it's important to argue uh, if we look at um, Turay and Hamilton's understanding of institutional racism, there's no difference between that and the way I've characterized systemic racism as something, um, you know, that is necessary for nations, in particular colonial nations like Australia and the United States, to exist, right? But more recently, institutional racism has been accepted. Um, and we can trace the origins of this back, I think, uh, to the United Kingdom in the 1990s, a very brief positive history of this is that following the, the murder of black teenager Stephen Lawrence in 1993, there was finally an inquiry held by the government, in, which was published in 1999, uh, referred to as the McPherson Inquiry. And this inquiry found that indeed the Metropolitan Police had been guilty of institutional racism because, of course, Stephen Lawrence had been murdered by five white young men and they all went scot-free. They have more recently actually served jail time, but that's a, a different story. That didn't happen for a very long time. And the idea was that um, inaction on behalf of the Metropolitan Police led to this situation being the case. Now, McPherson ruled that indeed the Metropolitan Police was rife with what he named institutional racism. Now, of course, the call had been there for at least... 20, well, 15 to 20 years previously by the black community following the Brixton uprisings to recognize the existence of institutional racism and the establishment of never, had never recognized it and had preferred um, to, to say that the uprisings had been, you know, the fault of um, unruly black culture, right? That was the official explanation. Mm. So the acceptance of institutional racism was very important. But if you look at the ruling by McPherson or the report by McPherson, what he actually said is that this was unwitting. Okay? So he removes the idea of the system relying on this, um, you know, this, this function of race within the institution in order for it to, to perpetuate. And of course, the solution that was proposed was that more ethnic minority police officers be hired, okay, as if mm. it was just the overwhelming whiteness of the organization, mm. which was the reason for racism, um, not discounting that that's not in part a reason, but that completely bypassed the fact that the actual foundations of the police were racial to their core. Yeah. And that's such an interesting parallel to so many conversations that are being had now, um, particularly in America, but I guess starting up in Australia. Mm. Um, so we're going to take a really short break and be right back. If you've just tuned in, you're on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're hearing from Associate Professor Alana Lenton, and we'll be right back. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer space Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics, intersectionality, turf or institutional racism? Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. 
Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonisation, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune into Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am, starting the 8th of January, 855am or via 3cr.org.au. And you're back listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You are tuning in to episode two of our summer school summer programming special. And we are about to hear or bring back Alana Lenton, who's very kindly speaking with us this morning about um, all things race and racism related. Um, so, Alana, something that comes up a lot, um, particularly in Australian discourse, um, and I guess especially at the moment, is um the idea of whiteness as not just um, a skin colour, but as a concept in and of itself. Um, yeah. What does, I guess when we're talking about it in that context, what is whiteness? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, whiteness is something that exercises a lot of people, in particular white people who seem to be completely obsessed with their own whiteness, despite denying that it has any importance. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think that the easiest way to explain this and something that I think... Um, you know, white people should embrace is that whiteness is a structure. It's best understood as a structure rather than a description of people, which of course doesn't mean that there are no white people. White people exist, um, but they exist only because whiteness has been elevated as the pinnacle of, uh, of race. So if we understand race as the technology of power, what is the aim of that power? The aim of that power is to maintain white supremacy at all costs, right? So whiteness is best understood as a structure that needs dismantling. Um, I think it's quite interesting when, if we make an analogy with gender. I think there's a much um, better acceptance that gender is an oppressive structure and that there are, you know, that, that a lot of people would benefit from dismantling it. I'm not by any means saying that this is something that's widespread uh, in acceptance, but I think that there's a better understanding of how gender works structurally rather than merely being about, you know, describing appearance or describing behavior or personality mm. uh, or even opportunity, etc. But where, when it comes to whiteness, I think that people find it very, very difficult to accept it as a structure. Um, I think the, the, the main way we can see how this works is how historically over time, non-white people, so people who have been considered um, outside of whiteness, racialized in various ways, even if they are white appearing, like, for example, most classically the Irish, um, and more recently in the Australian context, the Italians, the Greeks, and, and the mm-hmm. Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, not that there are no Jews of color, let me make it quite clear, but, you know, European Jews at least have been brought into whiteness and have become part of the white project. So if that's the case. These are people who, in, within very recent history, were not considered white, and in, in many instances, are still not considered white, um, depending on context, right? Have been able to whiten themselves uh, th- because whiteness works as a structure rather than being descriptive of mere skin color. I mean, one of the essays that is, uh, describes this best, it's a long essay, but it's well worth reading, is Cheryl Harris, who's an African American professor of law. She wrote an essay in 1993 called Whiteness as Property. And although it's very specific to the history of the United States in that it explains the context both for U.S. 
settler colonialism and slavery, it's nonetheless been used, for example, to great effect by um, the Aboriginal critical race theorist Aileen Morton Robinson in her 2015 book, The White Possessive, to explain a lot about the Australian context as well. So Cheryl Harris explains that whiteness in the U.S. should be understood as a form of property Mm. uh, because it confers status on descendants of white people by the simple fact of birth. So you have an elevated status vis-a-vis black and First Nations people in the United States simply because your parents were considered white Mm. and you don't have to do anything else to have that status just as blackness within the context of U.S. uh, slavery confers the status of slavery. So because you were born to a slave, you will be a slave, right? And only black Mm. people are given this status, which is very interesting because a lot of white backlash today, especially on the Internet, around the idea of slavery. You may have seen memes about, you know, the, the... Irish people who were considered to be slaves and so on. Now, of course, there's a a very important confusion made here and purposive confusion made between indentured servitude and slavery. Mm. But leaving that aside for a moment, the type of slavery, uh, if we want to call it that, that Irish people underwent um, did not mean that this was forever going to be the case. But the way in which slavery was encoded into blackness or blackness was encoded into slavery, Mm. if you like, meant that there was no escape from this context. And it's that originary meaning that's attached to blackness within the United States context, which can be seen in the legacy of the treatment of black people post-slavery and to this Mm. day. Yeah. Phenomenal explanation. Thank you. That was... Mm. Alana, this is Ayan here. Oh, hello. Hi. (laughs) Uh, good morning. Good morning to you too. Thank you so much for coming on and just breaking down Thanks such for me. like condensed information. It's so important. Um, I'm getting the idea that you're talking about white privilege. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of white privilege, can you tell us how it affects things like employment and housing? Mm-hmm. I mean, white privilege gets a kind of a, a bad rep. Um, people don't like the concept. And I'm not sure myself whether... A, I, I like the concept. Um, I think maybe that's why I like Cheryl Harris's idea of whiteness as property. It speaks to the structural much more than the idea of privilege does to me. But I'll, I understand that it's a term that many people use, and I think it has its, it has a place. Um, privilege assumes that it's something that you can pick up and discard if you like. And I do think that all white people have to involve themselves in um, the active dismantlement of whiteness as a structure. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean that if I simply forego my privileges as an individual, that we're going to bring about that structural change, Mm. right? But a good example of how whiteness as privilege works, actually I heard this in a lecture by the sociologist of masculinities, Michael Kimmel, who's actually been quite discredited these days for sexual harassment issues, But he did say one thing, which is quite useful. He said, you hear young white men. He did these interviews with young white men in a book that he called Guyland, which I think is from 2008. And he interviewed all these young college students in the United States. And he would hear things like, a black woman got my job. Okay? Mm -hmm. And that seems quite innocuous to many people. But if you actually 
break down what that means, there's an assumption that this job, whatever it is, should go to a white man. Um, not because that white man has done anything more than the black woman in this instance to deserve this job or even to need this job, but because that has always been the case. Today, due to the struggles of black people and other racialized minorities with supporters to bring about a certain modicum of change, it's no longer possible to say, this is my job and you people sit at the back of the bus, right? Mm. So in that context, the language is not, she got my job, it's she got the job. Mm. Okay, so as soon as we, and, and we can see this cropping up all the time in relation to immigration, this idea that there are those who are here deservedly, Mm. As a fact that's conferred upon them by the simple virtue of being white, leaving aside, of course, Aboriginal people for one reason who, unfortunately for many white people, cannot be gotten rid of because they have always been here, although efforts have been made recently uh, with the attempted deportation of an Aboriginal man, I note. Mm. Um, but other migrants, more recent migrants, um, are considered to be here illegitimately on the, on the simple basis of not being white, mm. not for any other reason. And that's because we've made an attachment. We've attached ideas of race to ideas of nation and borders work in racialized ways in order to um, include and exclude mm. in ways that, you know, specify very specific rules about what it means to be in and what it means to be out, often arbitrary. And their arbitrariness in and of itself is what make, makes race continue to work because race requires this constant revolution, this constant evolution in order to work. It needs to work in various kind of multifaceted ways um, mm. in order to perpetuate itself. And that's why it's important to return to what I said at the very beginning, that it's not any one thing. Mm. Uh, that might have been slightly confusing, but... No, for now. <laughs> no, because well, the good thing is we will turn it into a podcast. So there will be an opportunity for us to listen to it over and over, even if we oh. didn't get it the first time. Um, just one other question. I um, Normally, the justification um, that people use when they're making racist comments is that, you know, I don't see color or, mm. um, or I have a black friend or a black lover or so what do you say to people like that who um, don't see themselves as racist but then they make comments that are racist mm. I think a lot of this um, originates with the with the, the dominant idea prevalent in society about what racism is okay and I think there's been a very very successful uh, if you think about what I said about a, at the beginning about where the term racism originates and what it's become. There's been a very successful project to confine racism to something about morality, mm. something about individual ethics and attitudes and beliefs. And because we've totally swallowed that idea that racism is about bad behavior, and of course, why wouldn't we swallow this? This is what children get taught school they, mm. there's an analogy made between racism and bullying yeah. mm. children are taught that it's the same thing right yeah. the, and, and if you haven't literally bullied another person or call them a racist name mm. then you can't be racist mm. okay so we've all swallowed that 
and this is and, and everybody wants to distance themselves from it. So one of the phenomena that I'm writing about at the moment, which is interesting, I kind of started noticing this about three years ago, and I started calling it not racism. So everything that happens, which is blatantly racist to you or I, is immediately termed not racist by a variety of people. The first time I noticed this was when a man called Darren Osborne um, drove in front of the Finsbury Park Mosque in London and while people were crossing the road to go to prayers, and he killed a man. And the very first thing that his family and associates said is, Darren Osborne is not a racist. Mm. Now, the man said, I did it for the cause. I wanted to kill Muslims, mm. right? So, but he was nonetheless labeled not racist because his family thought it would be very important to put that onto the record. Now, today we see it everywhere. And there's a lot of, you know, people talk a lot about this language that's used, like things like racially tinged or one of the <laughs> other expressions that people, mm. that people constantly use. So this has become noticed. Yeah. And so, but the reason why people want to distance themselves from racism is that we think it's like farting in public or something. You know, it's bad behavior. It's yeah. rude. It's, it's distasteful. Like, it's distasteful. I, I possibly couldn't be one of those people. Exactly. So because we have this very narrow understanding of what racism is, we then don't have a structural understanding of how race works. Mm. Um, and so um, and so that's a very bad basis upon which to do anything about race, because constantly people um, have this very performative distancing or denial approach in which, and you know, people like, for example, Ruby Hamad has written about this, white women's years and so on, people will feel personally attacked and turn the conversation about racism into their own intention and their bad feeling about having been called out for being racist. And then, of course, you have the clever people on the white left who turn around and say, well, you're using this racism thing as a stick to beat ordinary people with. Ordinary people is always a code for white people as it's used mm. by uh, journalists like Jeff Sparrow and so on in the Australian context. Yeah. And so when you do that, it turns into these big, bad minorities who are beating other people over the head for making mistakes. OK. Mm. And and this is a major reason why today we can't have a serious conversation about race and colonialism as an ongoing structural as the ongoing structural condition in a country like Australia. Mm. And I'm, I'm so glad that you um pointed out coded language because those of us who are at the end tail of racism, we understand certain language is directed towards us. Mm. But because no one uses the N-word anymore. Every, everyone's become really clever, but they will use certain language. Can you quickly touch on that before we uh, wrap up? Yeah, because I think it's so important for people to be able to pick up those kind of language. Yeah, I mean, I think people know what, many people know what the language is themselves, but I mean, something that I come across constantly, I am very lucky to teach in a, a racially diverse university. I don't have the same problems that colleagues, for example, at University of Sydney have, where they'll, they'll be attacked by white students in class. And we saw the recent case of the Daily Telegraph doing a hit job on, on members of staff, uh, women and uh, people of color at University of Sydney. I don't have that problem. But one thing which seems to be universally shared in the Australian context, no matter what background you're from, is various notions about Aboriginal people, various stereotypes, which make assumptions about, for example, um, you know, welfare attitudes to work, 
um, involvement in criminal activity and so on. So nobody has to actually call somebody a racist slur to say things. And very often the language used is one of concern. But wouldn't it be better if these people didn't get Centrelink because it perpetuates a situation where they don't like to work? As if, you know, having a job or wanting a job is a choice and people mm. simply would prefer to stay at home. And this language of concern, this very patronizing liberal language of concern, is something that is used, is a, is a, is, is a very central weapon of racism, um, which uh, when then questioned on it, if somebody speaks, if a student speaks to me in this way or indeed somebody who I meet in another, in another situation speaks to me in this way and I question it, they'll say, but... I'm not being racist, this is common sense, or this is me trying to be helpful, or whatever the language is. So I think that's a very obvious and classical example of how racism is perpetuated in, in Australia. Alana, we would love to have you on for the next five hours and just keep picking your brain. <laughs> this has been absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Um, but unfortunately, we are well over time. Um, for listeners who've enjoyed hearing from you this morning, as I'm sure everybody has, um, we have a link to your Understanding Race Master Subject um, reading mm-hmm. list, which we'll make available to our listeners. Um, but really quickly before we let you go, is there any key writers or thinkers in this space um, that people just beginning to understand the concepts you've talked about today might benefit from? I mean, I'd written down a whole list of people, but I understand that we don't have time. But I think if we're looking at the Australian context specifically, I think, you know, the absolute must reference is Aileen Morton Robinson's book, uh, The White Possessive, and any writing by her in general. Um, I would also recommend uh, Chelsea Bond, uh, Aboriginal sociologist, and she also has the advantage of having a lot of articles published in, you know, in The Guardian and The Conversation and things like that, so easily accessible. And, of course, Patrick Wolfe, I think quickly it's quickly become a classic, his Traces of History is a book that really explains a lot, not just about the, uh, about Australia, but also about the US, Israel, and Brazil um, also. Outside of Australia, very quickly, I think, you know, you must look at Stuart Hall, uh, Franz Fanon, Cheryl Harris as your absolute minimum. Um, I did note down a few newer, newer books that I've read recently that I think people would enjoy, uh, which include uh, Gargi Bhattacharya's new book, which is called Rethinking Racial Capitalism. It's absolutely fascinating account of race and gender and another book I'm enjoying at the moment which is um, Robbie Shilliam's Race Class and the Undeserving Poor mm-hmm. which are particularly you're interested in how these tropes of um, around identity politics and uh, you know the white working class and these types of things um, the history of all of that and how race emerges very much as a class uh, phenomenon right from the beginning that's an absolute must read as well You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Next up, we have um, an incredible person joining us in this special summer school program on race and identity, Edie Shepherd. Edie Shepherd is a proud Wiradjuri and Baladong woman and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organiser for the Victorian Trades Hall Council. She works actively within the First Nations Workers Alliance to bring an end to the racist and punitive community development program and is steering the trade union campaign for reparations for wages stolen from the Victorian government. Uh, from the Koori folks. 
We will be talking to Edie about structural racism and how unions and union campaigns can contribute meaningfully to anti-racist work and movements for First Nations people. Thank you so much for joining us today, Edie. You've done heaps of work with young people before, so can we start by maybe um, sharing some um, of your thoughts about how racism affects young Aboriginal people, especially with regards to self-identity, and how that then continues into adulthood? I mean, it's it's one of those things, right? So I'm a youth worker by trade. It's what I've been trained in, and it's what I did before I um, I began working in the trade union movement. And I always made sure that I had a particular focus for working with other young blackfellas. At the time, I was still a young blackfella and all of that sort of stuff. I come from a big family of um, Aboriginal teachers as well, and mm. I was always had it drummed into my head that if you can stop for lack of a better phrase, stop the bleeding while you're young, mm. you don't bleed out as an adult. Um, so in my last job before I was here, I was working with young blackfellas who were interacting with the so-called justice system. Mm. Um, and it would be for some of the smallest, tiniest crap. But as we know, on this continent, as one of the most incarcerated, as the most incarcerated population in the world, um, that racism absolutely starts young and just ramps up. So I guess for me the name of the game was to really try and not protect because I don't think that that was really going to do much Mm. Um, when we live in a world where if I put someone in a cocoon and let them out, you know, it would be a shock. But the name of the game was to really um, help young blackfellas be able to identify when, you know, a settler's being gammon mm. compared to having a really strong and staunch sense of culture. So mm. when I got in with, like, young fellas, it was it was okay. I say okay <laughs> as a relative thing, I mean. But when you started um, sitting down with 17, 18, even 19, 20-year-olds, you know, all the way up to 25, it became one of those things where... If I had a dollar for the amount of times I'd had a conversation with a young person, he said, cool, so if I just don't let anyone know that I'm Aboriginal and I stop being Aboriginal, maybe this will stop. Mm. Um, And I mean, that kind of cuts to the core of all of it, right? Where Mm. we live in a world where for a young person, it becomes easier and by no means is it an easy feat to deny Aboriginality in your culture because it runs in your blood and... It drives who you are. But Mm. when we live in a world where it's easier to deny that Mm. than deal with the racism, it definitely becomes this thing where for a lot of young fellas, the amount of racism that we face Mm. begins to perpetuate a cultural genocide that we see across so many facets of the country Mm. and the way it runs. But it's just another one of those layers where you're pushing people out of out of who they are mm. as a mechanism of survival. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of, I guess, resilience building that um, that you have to do and you have to start from a, from a young age because of, of who you are, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. My mum used to mm, always say, mm, you're, um, you don't get a choice, you're born into politics when you're black, so mm, it's, you just have to get in real quick yeah yeah and in your current job you're doing a lot of work around the community development program which um you describe mm-hmm. as punitive and racist can you talk about what that is and, and what those issues are 
oh, I could talk about CDC until, <laughs> mm. <laughs> until it was blue yeah. in the face. Um, so as it stands, we've got a couple of... It's, it's part of the unemployment, like, Centrelink system. Mm. So we've got a couple of different work for the Dole programs, and then there's the Community Development Program, which has about 35,000 participants, over 33,000 of which are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. So they only occur, this program only occurs in remote and regional communities around Australia. And under other Work for the Dole programs, it's optional 15 hours a week for six months of the year. Under CDP, you have no choice to go on it. You have to work five hours a day for five weeks mm. for minimum wage. Mm. Not even, sorry, not even minimum wage. For minimum Centrelink payment, mm. it's the program that has the highest amount of, um, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Like punishment. Mm. So, like, they've just introduced a demerit system, I believe, but it's so... We were out in a community and I was talking to an elder. Mm. She was in her late 60s. She lived, like, out in a remote community, needed to go to the doctor because she was quite unwell. She had to travel three days to get to her doctor. Three days that weren't accounted for for a medical certificate, so she had one strike. Then she had to travel three days back to get back from the doctor. That's the second strike. So she's lost $150 of her fortnightly payment. Mm. Comes back to her job service provider gives them the medical certificate and it's missing one section from the Centrelink thing, she got cut off from her payment for six weeks. Mm. Mm. Like, entirely cut off. It's absolutely outrageous. We also have stories of young blackfellas damaging tendons in their hands that mm. no longer have full sensation in their hands because there's no occupational health and safety or work cover because it's not covered under any workers' rights legislation. It's under oh. social security. So if someone gets injured, mm. someone dies, in the process of doing work, mm. there is no cover, there is no assistance provided, there is no medical support, there's nothing. That's awful. And yeah. this is a program that is just overwhelmingly mm. being forced upon Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's, it's yeah. slavery. Yeah, and how do programs like the CDP um, feed into this structural racism that First Nations people have to face and overcome all the time? Well... I mean, the the bottom line is no one knows what the CDP is, right? Mm. So mm. blackfellas working on the CDP out in communities are picking up the garbage. They're working as teacher's aides in classrooms. They're doing waged jobs mm. for no money. Mm. Now, mm. when we tell someone, kind of when you, when you look at systems of work in this really sort of theoretical sense, I guess, and as a union official, I do, when we give someone the wages and conditions that they are entitled to, we are showing that person respect and we are showing that person that we value their time, we're valuing what they put their body through. Even if you're sitting at a desk, you're putting your body through something mm -hmm. in the name of being able to put a roof over your head, right? Mm -hmm. So what are we telling Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when they're forcing them to do hard, physical, waged work every single day without reprieve or absolutely nothing. And what are we telling other people in that community that we have a basically slaved labour population in a town or in a community or a city? We are robbing people of their dignity. We are robbing people of the right to be able to um, pretty much move freely because when you combine that with the basics card, 
Mm. So we've got communities where they're being forced to work for their, like do hard work for their minimum entitlements, and then they're given a cashless card where they can't even control where their money does. It's absolutely an ideological act, and it is absolutely a program of humiliation and subordination, which is something that so-called Australia has a really long history of doing to our community. Mm. And it's yeah. directing the narrative of what self-worth could Absolutely. and should mean to people. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. And you do a lot of work with um, you know, unions and union campaigns and that sort of thing. How can um, unions and union campaigns contribute meaningfully to this sort of anti-racist work or movements for First Nations people? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's definitely something that is is coming along, which is really exciting because it would be really um, not just naive, but com- like I would have to ignore a lot of stuff mm. um, because I mean the re- reality is the trade union movement is a cross section of what Australia is like. The trade union movement once supported the white Australia policy, for mm. example. You know, there's legacies and stuff that we as a movement have to overcome. Um, and it's super exciting to see that there is actually some movement because when you look at people who are the most exploited at work, when you look at the people who are having their wages and conditions torn out from them and are experiencing some of the worst discrimination in the workplace, it is First Nations people and people of colour more generally. So, mm-hmm. like, if I'm just plucking out examples, the NUW are now campaigning for amnesty for migrant workers because we had that... The 7-Eleven is, the, is mm. an, one of the really common, um, was a really well-publicised example of um, migrant workers being absolutely horrendously exploited um, and having their visa status held over their heads. So that's a union that's fighting for amnesty for uh, undocumented, for lack of a better word, I hate that term, mm. um, but undocumented migrant workers. We have... On just last Saturday, the union movement showed up to the anti-racism rally a decade ago, like the no-Nazis rally a decade ago. That probably mm. wouldn't have happened. It would have been individual union members. So we're sort of getting there. But the thing that I'm the most excited about is that basically the union movement is starting to show up and we're starting to get officials and staff members who aren't just your classic pale, stale male, Mm. Um, we're starting to actually hire and develop and support rank and file members of colour to Mm. be able to actually drive those campaigns. Mm. So really the union movement just needs to keep on hiring more, I hate to use diverse because that implies that white dudes are the norm and I don't think they're normal <laughs> but um, mm. continue to hire people who have a breadth of experience that isn't just that white Australia because we drive our own campaigns and Absolutely. we know our communities we're in our communities yeah. and that's how we continue to strengthen and try and create positive social change and all of that sort of stuff Amazing and that's that's a really beautiful note to end this show on. Thank you so much for joining us, Edie, and next time we promise no to be more technologically competent. <laughs> all right. I, I can barely use my Mac, which I got because I don't know how to use a PC. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.